Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. To the first gospel in order, some believe the first written gospel. To the most read gospel throughout church history, the gospel according to Matthew. In Matthew chapter 1, we have a genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only gospel that begins this way. It's in verses 1 through 17. I read it to you last week. I'm not going to do that again today. So I'm going to read the summary in verse 1 and then the recap in verse 17. The details are 2 through 16. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, or anointed one, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then 2 through 16, you can scan down. It's a genealogy. It's a list of names. Till we come, let me pick it up in verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Let's say a short prayer. Father, thank You for, again, Your inspired Word. And we pray that it would have significance to us today. We pray that it would have great meaning to every person who is here. And I ask for Your help to deliver what I trust You have led me to prepare. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I said last week we got to first start with the main point, the big idea of this genealogy. And it's very simple. Matthew is tracing for us from Abraham to Joseph, the husband of Mary. He is tracing for us Jesus' legal right to the throne of David. Not the biological right that comes through Mary. That's Luke's genealogy. But He's giving to us the legal, royal lineage through Joseph. And that's what this passage is all about because he's writing to Jewish Christians and this is what they would expect and this is what they would need. If he's going to tell them, Jesus of Nazareth is your King, He is your Messiah, they want to know the pedigree. They want to know if He's got the right papers. Man, what a big deal it was in our country when a former president was said to have not had a birth certificate that was, you know, showed that he was born in America. And that was just a huge deal to a lot of people for a long time, right? Well, how about if you're the Messiah of the world? You talk about having the right birth certificate. Christ has it. That's what Matthew is communicating in this genealogy. But we need to seek for the significance of this. That's what it means, but what does it mean for us? What is the application 21 centuries later for you and me? And so what I have developed is what I'm calling genealogical encouragement. This is part two. If you weren't here last week, we did part one. Genealogical encouragement. As I theologically reflect on what is going on here and what this passage is doing, I think Matthew is encouraging us along three lines. Number one, he encourages us with this to be saved by this King. We talked about that last week. To trust Him for your deliverance from sin and God's wrath. 
To look to Jesus in the shed blood of Christ to take away all of your sins and to make you acceptable in the sight of a holy God. This wonderful genealogy encourages everyone who encounters it to be saved by Jesus. But there are two more encouragements for us. And that's where we pick it up today. The second one is, beyond being saved, number two, be solid. Be solid in your faith or be firm in your faith. That's what this genealogy would encourage us to do. You see, it is one thing to be saved, right? It is another thing to know that you're saved. It's one thing to be delivered from sin and, and, and you're on your way to heaven, but it's really important that you know that you're on your way to heaven. It's called assurance of salvation and assurance of faith. And Matthew would want us to have that. He would want us to be solid in faith. It's one thing to have a mustard seed of faith. And yes, a mustard seed of faith is enough to save you. Praise God. The tiniest speck of saving faith saves completely. But we want to move past mustard seed to an oak tree of stability, right? An oak tree of being solid in our faith in Messiah Jesus. This genealogy would teach us that trust in Christ is the most reasonable, rational thing you and I can do. Trust in Christ is as objective and rational as a genealogy, as a legal document proving the pedigree of our Savior. I think this is very important. I think it's something that we often forget about. There's a lot of emotion in Christianity and some branches of Christianity just run amok in emotion and it seems to be that's all that they're after. There is real and genuine emotion in our faith and we, I hope, express some of that this morning in our singing. Amen? I mean, we sing so that our emotions get involved with our thoughts and our faith and that all mixes together and becomes praise and worship to God. But I think we need to also be reminded that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our mind. Not just our heart, not just our uh, uh, feelings. Christianity is not a blind leap into mystical, murky waters. Christianity is not a swim in quicksand. Christianity is not a check-your-brain-at-the-door religion for the stupid and the superstitious. Our faith can be solid faith because it's objective, it's historical, it's rooted in reality. In other words, there are reasons why we believe what we believe. We don't just believe, we have objective evidence for what we believe. And at the top of the list of the reasons why we believe what we believe is that Jesus Christ checks every box. (laughs) Jesus has the right pedigree and only Jesus has the right pedigree. His pedigree is impeccable and it's unimpeachable. And that's what Matthew wants us to know from this genealogy. So we want to be solid in our faith. Not just saved, not just saved by the skin of our teeth, not just barely hanging on by a thread, but we want to be standing firm on the rock that is Jesus Christ. And this will help us to do that. This genealogy is going to serve them. Let me give you a picture, like a giant prophetic funnel that's going to go way back in time and way back in human history and grab a lot of different people and it's going to funnel down and narrow down and narrow down and drop us off on the rock called Jesus. 
It's going to narrow down from many, many people to one person. So let's scan the text and let me show you what I mean. It begins with Abraham, of course. Abraham's line through Isaac. There is no mention of Ishmael. So there's a 50% exclusion right there. We're going through Isaac, the son of promise. And then from Isaac, it's through Jacob. And there is no mention of Esau, his twin brother, and the firstborn. Another 50% exclusion. This line is going through Jacob. Jacob I have loved. Esau I have hated, God says. And then from Jacob, it's to Judah. Now the 11 brothers are mentioned, the 12 tribes of Israel. The 11 brothers are mentioned, but they're set aside. We're going through Judah. That's a 92% removal. We're going through one of 12 now. And that is some serious funneling. But why Judah? Prophecy. Genesis 49.10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Prophecy is why he has to come through Judah. Well, why Perez? Look at verse 3. Why Perez and not Zerah, his twin? I mean, what difference does it make? They're the same parents in the same womb. Why does it have to be Perez? Because Matthew is following name for name, Ruth chapter 4. And in Ruth chapter 4, it starts with Perez and goes to David, and Matthew is following that list of names. And because of Ruth chapter 4, the rabbis of Matthew's day had a nickname for Messiah. It's one you probably have never heard before. It's Son of Perez. Son of Perez was a nickname rabbis used to refer to Messiah. Matthew would have known that. He makes sure to include Perez. But why Jesse? Verse 6. Why does he have to come from Jesse? Prophecy. Prophecy of hundreds of years prior to this, Isaiah 11.1. Some 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus, we have a prophecy that he has to have come from Jesse. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Well, that's an understatement of the century. (laughs) But not just of Jesse, right? He has to be of the house Speaking of Luke, the house and the lineage of who? David. He must come from the house and lineage of David. Why David? Well, because of Psalm 89, 3 and 4 that says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. We saw that last week. That's the Davidic covenant. It's first mentioned in 2 Samuel 7. Why David? Because of 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 89. But it's not like David was Jesse's only son. 
I mean, Isaiah 11.1 just said he had to be of the stem of Jesse. Well, Jesse had seven sons. And the most likely to be chosen would have been the firstborn. And if not him, the second. And if not him, the third. Or the fourth. Or the fifth. or the, No, it's none of them, is it? It's the seventh. It's the least likely to be chosen. It's the youngest, David. Six of seven sons are set aside. That's an 86% removal rate. <laughs> and the narrowing continues. Matthew's opening shot across the bow is that Jesus is the promised son of David and God's anointed Savior of the world, period. He has come. Here he is. That's what this wonderful genealogy is telling us and it's telling us and encouraging us then to be solid. Solid in your faith. Firmly rooted. In my Bible, it has no notes, not a lot of uh, extensive references, so it's mostly just text. This is the Old Testament. I don't think anything. This is the Old Testament in my Bible, and it's 1,344 pages. Why is it here? Why is it here? Because it gives us prophecies, promises, and patterns that all point to Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is here so that you and I will be solid in our faith. Grounded in our faith. Let me just put it this way. If there's a prophecy that's necessary, he fulfills it. He fulfills all of them. I'm just scratching the surface this morning of the ones related to this genealogy. Whether it's Isaiah or Ruth or 2 Samuel or Psalm 89. They go on and on and on. They were written hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene. And he fulfills them all. This is why we can be solid. This is why the Old Testament was in fact written. Now there's another major contribution to you and me being solid in the faith, and it's verse 17. You may think of verse 17 as a throwaway verse. You may be puzzled by verse 17. You may be wondering, why does that even matter? So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14. David to the deportation to Babylon, 14. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14. Now, there are several things we've got to understand here about this verse. It's a very intriguing verse. It's a very challenging verse. First of all, we know by comparing this genealogy to the Old Testament that Matthew actually skips generations. He actually skips some kings. In comparing this one to 1 Chronicles, you discover that. In the first section, he skips three. In the last section, he's probably skipped several more. And so why would he talk about 14 if he's actually skipping generations? I mean, Matthew 1 knows the Bible, and 2, he knows how to count to 14. So why is he doing this? Well, because what he means in verse 17 is this. He is referring to everyone he has listed, not to all that existed. Verse 17 refers to what I have listed, not to all that existed. Okay? That's the first thing you've got to understand. Now, for us, this probably creates a problem, a little bit of a hang-up in our minds, but it doesn't in the minds of Jewish readers for two reasons. For a Jewish person to to be talking about the son, grandson, or great-grandson, it didn't matter. You could still say son of. 
You could say son of and be a great grandson. It didn't bother them at all because they really saw a connection to their forefathers that we don't really have anymore, right? They understood lineage. It would be just like we say that Mary is the mother of all the living. Mary's our mother. I mean, not Mary, Eve, sorry. Eve is our mother, right? But boy, there's a lot of generations in between us and her. There's a big gap there, but Eve is the mother of all the living. So Jews would have no issue with that. The second reason they have no problem with the fact that he skipped some generations is that a Jewish genealogy did not require every person to be listed. So if you're going to prove a point, you don't have to have every single one of them to prove the point. Now, I don't know if you've tried to count the 14s in this genealogy, but it's basically impossible. There are about five or six different theories and solutions to what in the world is Matthew referring to when you start trying to count them. I've got three on an Excel spreadsheet that I created to try to to just grasp because how does he compute his 14s? At the end of the day, we have to basically say two things. One, we can't know how he was computing them for sure. And two, we have to assume he knows how to count to 14. So there is a solution, and we can make some theories and guesses, and I can send that to you if you want it, but that's not really the point here. (laughs) The question then is, why does he choose number 14? If it's hard to discern the 14s, and if he actually skips generations, why does he go with that number? Gematria is where a number is assigned to each Hebrew letter. It's an art and science. Each letter of the Hebrew alphabet is assigned a number. The first letter, number one. The second letter, number two. So forth. And when Hebrew was written, they did not have vowels. They just wrote in consonants. All right? Vowels were added later so that we could try to pronounce them. The name David in Hebrew is D-V-D. D is Daleth. It's the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. V is Vav. It is the sixth letter. And then Daleth again. Four plus six plus four equals 14. That's what's going on in verse 17. And every conservative commentary that I picked up agrees on this. Matthew is being cryptic. Creative and symbolic in verse 17 when he stresses to us that Jesus is the legal son of David. And that's why he chooses 14 because that's what his name adds up to. I'm thinking if you're an original reader of this, when, when 14 dawns on you, I'm thinking they just kind of stopped and they just smiled. <laughs> and they said, oh, Matthew, <laughs> you clever fox. That is really, that is really ingenious. You are trying to stress so deeply, so strongly that Jesus is the son of David, that you have built it into your numeric system. In this symbolic 14. If they didn't stop and smile, they may have stopped and gasped, right? Oh my. Remember, he is writing to a people who have been waiting and waiting and waiting for generations and generations and generations for God to keep his promise of sending Christ. 
And this is promise fulfilled. Now, there's one last reason for us to be solid. One last reason. The last nine names on this list uh, you've never seen before anywhere else in your Bible because they're not there. The last nine names on this list up to Joseph are otherwise unknown to us. These are the people who lived in the silent years. These are the people who lived in the gap when the Old Testament ended and before John the Baptist and Jesus come. There's nine names mentioned there. The fact that Matthew knows these names, lists these names, that takes us up to Joseph, tells us that he had access to genealogical records. That's very important. Because in A.D. 70... Rome had surrounded Jerusalem, and finally the siege was over. They broke through, and in A.D. 70, Jerusalem was completely destroyed. The city was burned, the city was raised to its foundation, and the temple was destroyed. And with all of that destruction by the Roman Empire on the Jewish people, with all of that destruction, the genealogical records were destroyed. They existed up until 70 A.D. Matthew had access to them to write his gospel. But once that happened, they were no longer in existence. What does that mean to us? And why can we be solid in our faith? Because no Jewish person today can prove he is of the tribe of Judah or the line of David. It is impossible. No Jewish person can step forth today and claim a tribal ancestry. They don't know. They'll never know. Those records are gone. So if you are waiting for the Messiah to be born, it's going to be a long wait. (laughs) And if you have trusted that Jesus is the Messiah, be solid in your faith. There is no one else to wait for. He has come. And God sealed it by allowing Rome to destroy the temple in A.D. 70. We can be solid. Now, you can be saved and you can be solid, and I hope and trust many of you are, but the reality is life can still be a, an emotional roller coaster, right? And life can still ball us up in knots of stress and tension and anxieties and fears. Uh, life can come at us at so many angles and so many so many devastating blows. We can be like Martha. We can be worried about so many things. I think Matthew wants to give us one more encouragement this morning. Not only does he want us to be saved and be solid, but number three, and this may apply to more people in here than any of these others, number three is he wants us to be still. He wants you to be saved, he wants you to be solid, but he wants you to be still. Do you understand that from Abraham to Jesus is 2,000 years How much can go wrong in 2,000 years? How many contingencies are there in 2,000 years? Well, we can't control two minutes. This is 2,000 years of history. But not just any history, history of sinners. Sinner after sinner after sinner. Liars and deceivers and manipulators. And most of the people on this list did not even seek the Lord. How is God going to pull this off through such a list of people and so much sin and failure? 
And all that failure came home to roost in 586 B.C. So we've talked about 70 A.D., the fall of Jerusalem. Let's go back to 586 B.C., right? And that's when Nebuchadnezzar came and the Babylonians, and they were fierce, and they surrounded Jerusalem, and they conquered it and destroyed it. And in 586 B.C., the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, followed their predecessors of the ten northern tribes, and they went into captivity, and they went into exile. We read this as Gentiles so long later, and these words, deportation to Babylon, do not even strike us. But if you were a Jew reading this and hearing this, you heard deportation to Babylon, it sounded like Holocaust. It would have ripped your heart out to be reminded of what happened to your nation and your people. And it is a hinge in this genealogy. It is a turning point because Matthew wants to encourage us to be still. The temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. That was Solomon's temple. And Jerusalem was burned and razed to the ground. And seemingly this was the end of David's reign through David's sons. This was a shameful time in the history of Israel. It was a depressing time, a dark time. I mean, people were being slaughtered, killed, exiled. Jeremiah's left in the land, thrown in a well. Ezekiel's taken out. They go 500 miles away to a people they don't know in a language they don't understand. And now they're under a foreign power once again. God's chosen people once again under slavery, in bondage. And this would last 70 years Babylonian exile. And they had no king. They were out of their land. They had no temple. They had no priesthood. I mean, imagine the depression. Imagine the sorrow. And all of this was God's punishment on them for not keeping the Mosaic covenant. God had warned them, if you don't keep this covenant, these things will happen to you. And God sent them prophets, and the prophets pled with them and begged them and urged them to repent, and the people did not repent. And now, deportation to Babylon there at the end of verse 11. Now it seems that everything is in doubt. The Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant because we have to have the land. And we're not even in our land and we have... Will we even exist as a nation any longer? And the Davidic line and, of course, ultimately the greatest, the greatest threat of all humanly speaking is how can the Messiah come? How can the Messiah come if the, this people group is disbanded and, and sent to the four winds? You may think I'm overstating this. Let me share something of the pathos of the exile from the Word of God. It's from Psalm 139. This is what the people said. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing for us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? That's some of the emotion of the exile, of the deportation, of the depression and the sadness And their tormentors, they're called, were mocking them, saying, be happy for us. 
Sing one of your Hebrew songs for us. And they say, how can we sing? How can we sing in a foreign land? We're not home. We're not where we belong. We've lost everything. How can we sing? But the very next verse, 12, after. These might be the most stunning words of this whole text. After the deportation to Babylon. It ended. God brought them back. God stirred up the hearts of pagan kings, Cyrus and others. And he allowed them to go back to their land. And he even provided for them through unbelievers. And we have the stories of Nehemiah in the Bible. So the deportation ends by God's grace. Reminding us we can be still and cease striving. And they come back into the land and lo and behold... Through a crooked family tree in time, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. In the fullness of time, Jesus shows up right on schedule. 2,000 years of history, including a deportation of an entire nation. And Jesus is right on time. He is not one minute late. He has the right mother, the right earthly stepfather. He's born in the right place at the right time, and he's given the right name. (laughs) Some of you feel deported and depressed this morning. Some of you feel like you are held captive in your own Babylonian exile. Life is not going as you planned. And this Christmas season is not all that great. This anointed and gracious king wants to say to you this morning, be still and know that God is God. And he is in control of your life. If he can orchestrate and oversee and superintend 2,000 years of human contingencies to bring forth a flawless savior... What can he do for you who will trust him? If God can produce the Messiah through this mess, what can he do with your mess? If Jesus can come to us from this crooked family tree, what can God do with our kids and our grandkids? See, God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the Gentiles and God's plan for you cannot be stopped because God's son cannot be stopped. (laughs) Herod can't kill him. Satan can't successfully tempt him. Judas can't turn him. And the grave can't hold him. God's plan will not be thwarted. So instead of stressing out, be still. Instead of stressing out, take a deep breath, relax, and be still and know that God is God. Cease striving, Psalm 46 says. Instead of focusing on what you do not know, focus on what you do know. And this is what you know. You know that God works all things after the counsel of His will. You know that God causes All things to work together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. That's what you know. Focus on what you know, not what you don't know. 
part of God's will for you, for the world, was to send Jesus to save the lost. Focus on that. Be still this season and know that God loves you. Be still and know that God is for you and not against you. Be still and know that God came in the person of Jesus to die for you, to bleed for you, to suffer God's wrath in your place. You see, your greatest problem has already been solved. Yes, we have problems. Yes, we have difficulties. Yes, there are fears and there are anxieties. But our greatest problem has already been solved. And in light of that problem, all of these other problems are tiny and minuscule at best. You need to be still today and know that every detail of your, of your life is right on schedule. Every detail. What this genealogy would do by way of encouragement is say this. God's plan is never threatened by sin, scandal, or failure. God's plan is never threatened by injury or cancer or death. God's plan is never threatened. Period. He is the sovereign of the universe. Despite our own delays, despite our own desert wanderings, despite our own deportations to our own Babylons of our own makings, we can be still this morning. We can step back and look at this and bow the knee to an almighty God who orchestrates every detail of our life and not a hair on your head has not been counted and preserved. This genealogy tells us and reminds us of something we need to be reminded of as powerful, technologically advanced, wealthy Americans. It reminds us that ultimately nothing depends on us. Nothing. God is not going to risk his sovereign will in the hands of puny, sinful man? Do things, relatively speaking, depend on us? Yes. But I mean ultimately, at the end of the day, and at the end of eternity, there isn't one, at the end of human history, nothing depends on us. We have some neat uh, software that we use in the office. It's called the Planning Center. Toby introduced us to it. It's uh, just a, a simple tool to, to kind of map out the details of our worship service. And so we use this every week. Toby does. He fills in the songs and scripture reading and all the different components of the service and, and, and lays it all out in the planning center. And he then assigns a time to each component of the service. And uh, so if you're interested, today's service is supposed to last uh, 75 minutes and 45 seconds. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful tool, but Toby often, if not always, underestimates my time, right? <laughs> he, he, just, he just puts, he, <laughs> he just posts in a number of 40 minutes. But actually, as I look at the clock, we're going to be really close to 11 45 and 45 seconds today. The planning center. Doesn't that sound so great? Can you, don't, you, don't you wish your life could be like that? 
Just lay it all out, assign the amount of minutes to each one. The reality is God has already done this with every one of our lives. God's got a planning center. And the difference is his times are not estimates or guesses. (laughs) They're exactly right all the way down the line. From first breath to final breath, every detail of our life sovereignly planned over and orchestrated by the King of Kings who is for us and not against us. He knows every contingency and yet he is still able to map out our lives to the second. This genealogy then reminds us and encourages us to be saved by this gracious king, to be solid in this trusted king, and to be still and know that he is king of kings. Amen. Amen. Father in heaven, may it be so today that the agitated, the frustrated, the irritated, that those who are beside themselves with fears and anxieties and concerns of this life, Lord, may this word find us today and may it help us to be still, to sit before you in prayer and silence, to rest in you, to trust in you, to lean wholly and completely upon you, to know that our life is in your hands as the whole world is in your hands and all of history is in your hands. And to be reminded that if you can orchestrate step by step from Abraham to Jesus, you can certainly take care of us. So we trust you, we love you, and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.